Hello, and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Matt Bryars has been the CFO of Wise since 2015. In 2021, Matt led the company to a direct listing on the London Stock Exchange, the first major direct listing in Europe. Wise, founded in the UK in 2011, has revolutionized cross-border payments for individuals and businesses by making them easier, faster, and cheaper. After 10 years as a private company, Wise followed in the footsteps of Spotify and Slack by doing a direct listing instead of a regular IPO at a valuation of $11 billion. With Matt, we discussed the rationale and timing to go public for a profitable tech company, which doesn't need to raise money, his experience of the direct listing process, and the considerations around the UK listing rather than the US. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Matt, thank you very much for being on the show. Highly appreciate it. Maybe I should let you introduce yourself first and then Wise, obviously. So, hey everyone, my name is Matt Bryars. I've been the CFO for Wise since 2015. And for those that don't know Wise, we used to be called TransferWise, so some of you may have been a customer for longer. We got started about 13 years ago trying to solve the problem of moving money around the world. Our two founders got started to solve this problem, which if you wanted to move money from the UK to Europe or Europe to Australia, it's going to be really painful with your bank. It's going to be really slow. It's going to take days for the money to get there. And then when it arrives, you're going to realize that it was really expensive. And this might have surprised you. It could cost you like 3 to 4% and a hidden fee by your bank. So Christo and Tavik got really pissed off for this and, uh, and set about trying to solve it. What they started doing themselves was just moving money between themselves. So Christo would put some money in Tavik's bank account in the UK and Tavik wanted to get money from Estonia to London and he would put some money in Christo's bank account in the Eurozone. And um, local banking payment systems are really instant and actually free in these jurisdictions. So the challenge was getting it cross borders. So this worked really nicely for them, but they decided to scale this. And here we are today as a... Uh, yeah, public company, but you know, with uh, we're moving well over a hundred billion pounds a year of people's money around the world. Uh, we do this for people, small businesses, and for those that you maybe use the product today, you might know that we do a lot more as well. So we became wise instead of transfer wise. We did more in transfers. People can hold money with us. They can invest the money. You can spend money on your card. You can receive money in many different bank accounts of ours around the world. And really, now wise is the way for people who have international money needs to really solve this problem. We move money radically cheaper, you know, as cheap as 0.4% in, in some markets. And over 60% of our payments are now instant. That means it's, instead of this three to five days, it's uh, in your bank account within 20 seconds, which is pretty cool. And uh, we're really proud of. Yeah, very successful story. That's amazing. Well done for that. And I hope it's only the beginning of the journey. Yeah, that's for sure. And you joined the company in 2015, right, Matt? Uh, so a couple of years ahead of the IPO in 21. That's right. Yeah, six years, exactly. So um, yeah, we were uh, obviously quite a different company back then. Did you have previous experience with public markets when you joined them as a CFO? 
None at all. So for then anyone who wants to be a CFO out there, I was actually, this is my first real proper job in finance. So um, I worked at Google before in the in the finance team in Europe, but, um, but actually a lot of these things can be learned, that's for sure. Yeah. So, you know, to remind everyone back in 21, obviously the IPO market was, was on fire, right? You probably were pricing an IPO every week. Uh, European markets were up 15%. And even in the UK, we saw a long series of tech companies coming to the market, the HUD Group, Deliveroo, Darktress, Trustpilot, AlphaWave. And then Wise decided to go to the market in July 21. Can you remind us what was rational at the time to, uh, to consider a public listing? We'd always been clear that at some point we were going to become a public company. So our mission is very long term. And in order to achieve what we want as a business, you know, we need to have a, we need to build a valuable company and have a really supportive long term shareholder base. And whilst we were really successful as a private company, we realized that over the next, not even 10, but maybe 20, 30 years, it's inevitable at some point we'd need to become a public company. It was the only real way to support ourselves at the scale that we want to operate in the future. So the question really then is like, when do you become a public company? We thought about this earlier than 2021. We thought about it obviously late in 2021. But I'd say for a number of factors, like that was around the right timing. Like there's no magic solution. Um, the reason to go public as well is whilst you're going to get there in the long run, is it's like some companies IPO, we to make an offering is to raise capital. And some companies do it for liquidity. And ours was, we were already profitable. We didn't need to raise money. So the question is, is like, when do we convert our stock to being a public stock such that we can actually provide liquidity to our early shareholders and our, and our employees as well? So then why 21 was the right timing then? Why not earlier or later? Uh, what was motivating the timing? That's a good question. And every time you spend time on preparing to be a public company, you're spending time on that rather than spending time on something else. So the question is, are you ready? Are you able to divert time to that while still being able to grow the company and invest as you want? If you do this too early, if you don't have a robust kind of structure in the company to be able to finance, legal, audit teams to be able to focus on that while the rest of the business kind of cracks on and keeps going as it is. If you do it too early, there's a chance of like massive disruption and you can see companies grind to a halt when they try and go public. And then on the flip side, I believe that if you do it too late, actually, like when you become a public company, a bunch of things need to evolve in the company, like nothing fundamental, but like just how you maybe administer or govern or run the financials of the company to evolve. And I think if you delay that too long, like the bigger you are, I would argue that the harder it is to change that later. So we made a judgment call that we were looking at this through 2019 and 2020 and 2021. We were like, right, when is the right point? And, and we were fortunate that it was somewhat within our gift because we were profitable. We didn't need to raise the money. And when we realized that we were in an 18 to 24 month window in, I guess, mid 2020, that we said, well, we're going to do this. I said to Christo, I remember saying like, we could do it in six months or we could do it in 18 months or we could do it in 24 months. And I remember saying to him, look, if I'm going to do this in 24 months, Christo, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on it for the next 24 months. So why not just do it in the next six to nine months and get it done? And ultimately, this is what it comes down to. Because remember at that time, like we weren't thinking, wow, there's a window, let's get it done in the window. Like we didn't need to raise money and couldn't possibly predict these windows either. So our logic was like, okay, we're committed to doing this in a, in a period of time. Let's just get on with it, get it done and, and you know, like keep focusing on, on running the company. Yeah, there was a window, but, you know, I remember as well, Deliveroo, um, you know, they were still down 20% versus its IPO when you guys go ahead. You've got to remember that like, if you're a business that needs to raise money, you're really sensitive to this, right? So like, you've got to make sure you've got at a certain point in time, you've got access to capital. But for us, it didn't really matter. Like if the window was shut, then we say, okay, the window's shut. If now's not the right time, or maybe we would, you know, because we're not raising money in a direct listing and separate thing, maybe we, it didn't really matter where the market was. We're just literally becoming a public company instead of a private one. 
So for us, it was um, it was a little less emotional the timing decision because we weren't trying to optimize raising money at a at a higher or lower price. So you went with um, a different structure, a direct listing structure, right? Which is very yep. innovative in the sense that I think it's the first one for a tech company in the UK at the time. In Europe, you had Spotify. That was back in 2018. They went to the US, which was then followed by Slack. I think Coinbase, Roblox followed the same structure. But we didn't have a similar example in, um, in Europe and the UK. Why that direct listing then structure and not the traditional IPO offering? On the one hand, they're different. But on the other hand, they're not that different. So a direct listing, really what this is, is um, you're putting the shares on the exchange on a certain day and letting them start to trade at a price at which an auction would, would define. I think it's worth just being clear just the mechanically how the London Stock Exchange works is every, every stock every morning starts trading in an auction for five minutes. And every stock at the end of every day has an auction. And these kind of settle and they clear the day's trading. So, you know, like Shell would start trading at a price, it would settle after that five minutes, and then it trades through the rest of the day. And essentially, a direct listing is the same where we had to structure this with the LSE, and we had to define how this would work. But it's pretty clear where we we started in the morning with an auction for our stock, where people put offers in to buy stock, and people put sell orders in at different prices. And the market essentially finds its price. It's not set by management. It's not set by a bank. It's not set by the selling shareholders. It's essentially like it finds a price at which stock will trade. And then the stock trades, just like any normal stock would. Whereas an initial public offering is the night before you would sell a bulk of stock at a certain price, and then the stock would trade the next day. So essentially, the only difference is you don't have that essentially a private transaction happening the night before. Why this is fundamental is like, the differences are clearly like you don't have that last minute decision of setting a price for that initial trade. And that is a a price at which all of these stocks are compared against today. And then as well, so what you end up with is you have willing buyers and willing sellers at certain prices. And that's great for management because ultimately you're not trying to price the stock high for your existing shareholders or low for your new shareholders. You're letting them trade on their own terms. A lot of the other stuff around a direct listing is actually very similar to an IPO. So you still would have the price discovery process. You would still have all of the prep to do to be a public company. And you would still do all of the early process of analyst presentations, of educating the market, getting them to understand your business. The fundamental thing that is different, and you still have a prospectus, the fundamental thing that is different is the um, you're not building a book in order to create that first transaction the night before. Yeah, you're not building the book and you're not setting the price yourself, right? Exactly right. And, and you know, I think this is much healthier for management. It's like you have these willing buyers and sellers and you remove some really complicated conflicts that exist within the shareholder base. But you could do that because, as you say, you didn't need to raise any capital. That's right. So obviously that, that helped then to consider a, a direct listing structure. But you still need to find sellers or get some of you pre-IPO investors willing to sell at a price. Obviously, they don't know yet. I and mean, they have to wait for the auction in, in the morning. But you still have this challenge to get a good understanding who are the potential providers of liquidity in this public market. So you need to get at least a shell, pre-IPO shareholder base, which is mature enough or willing enough to get a listing done, right? That's another condition. Of course, but to some extent have to rely on, uh, to some extent, this is the problem you have anyway with an IPO. If you're doing an IPO where it's purely primary capital, you need the shareholders to agree to a price at which you would happily sell stock, right, in order to create the dilution. And then if you're doing an IPO with where it's purely secondary, you have this complication where you could get to the night before and the investors would say, well, actually, I don't want to sell at that price. 
And then as management, then you, you do end up in a tricky place because you're like, well, hang on a minute. Okay. Well, what price would you sell at? And then, and then this end up to get them walked up. And the only way that you can uh, get people to buy that price is it puts an awful lot of pressure on the uh, projections or the guidance or the expectations that the buy side has on the business. Right? And I think it's very difficult for, you know, this is part of a, in an IPO process. So this, this tension that's like you get a long way down the process and you don't actually have certainty, um, necessarily that you, that you have a transaction. Whereas with the direct listing, we were very clear up front that, so mainly what the shareholders want is they want a, the option for liquidity rather than actual liquidity on the day. And then the price, the pricing discovery will happen in the market. And then if it's at a price that's acceptable for the selling shareholders, they'll sell stock. And if it's not, then no stock will trade. That's still okay. But ultimately what we did is we said, well, we'd like a minimum level of liquidity on the first morning in this first auction. So we actually, our shareholders committed to providing, I think it was around three or 4% of their stock. And this is in the transaction documents you can read to say, right, this is, I think about it as kindling for a fire. So it means that they didn't really mind so much what the price was on that three to 4% of their, of their shareholding, but this would get the fire started and then an auction would get going. So this meant that we had enough liquidity to stop trading, but not too much that basically the shareholders were like worried about like too heavy a discount or not as to how it would start trading on the day. And as a team, we said, well, you know, back in 2020, we said, okay, like if we can get all of our shareholders agreed to this structure, then we'll move forward. So we knew like very early on in the process that we had full support from the shareholder base to support this direct listing approach, which meant that we knew we had that early liquidity in the auction. Very interesting. So, so you had some visibility on the supply side. On the demand side for, for the investors, you say that this is a very similar process in terms of price discovery and investor education. I mean, that means you were actually roadshowing and, and meeting investors as if there was a traditional IPO. Exactly right. So we did like the early looks and the non-deal roadshows or however these get branded. So I remember we listed in July. So in January, we met some investors very early on and that's useful. And then again, I think in March, April, I can't remember exactly, but probably at three points during the process, just like you would for an IPO. We spent time with the investors early on, with the analyst community, and then again with investors. So I think it was really no different to a typical IPO. But again, you don't set the price. So as a CFO, a management team on the road, any frustration in feeling maybe that you don't have a direct influence on the outcome or the valuation or, or how you pre-IP investors were sure you were rightly incentivized as well to get the best outcome for them as with a public listing? Well, I think it's impossible to get the best outcome on one single trade on the night before or on the, on the morning of the day. Our investors had to believe that they were going to, with any IPO or company going public, as a selling investor, you have to believe, will I get the right outcome over the first one, two, three, four years? And as management, what we need to do is to set the company up to succeed for existing and for new investors over that period of time. It needs to be attractive for the investors to feel it's valued appropriately and attractive for new investors to want to invest and be on the journey for another 10 years. So we were really incentivized to make an orderly transition to, when I say incentivized, like we're all shareholders, this is the only incentives we held. You know, our goal was to make an orderly transition to public markets where our existing shareholder base and the, as important, if not more, the, the new shareholder base felt like it was a great process and we're excited to be on the bus. And I think you have way less conflicts in a direct listing with that than you do in an IPA. Less conflict in terms of what then? I mean, you're not setting a price. Like the market's finding a price, right? So you have willing buyers and willing sellers. So our job is to make both sides understand like the company and take a view on price, right? So our job is not to set a price at which we hope that a lot of stock will change hands. So why do you think there's no more uh, direct listing than traditional IPOs? What's the bottleneck here? Well, I think in the past, 
There's probably two things. In the past, a lot of companies, especially tech companies going public, need to raise capital. So they don't really work if you need to raise capital unless you raise it privately way before. And then it's very similar to running an IPO. So you may as well run an IPO. Those pipes work really well. And then the second is, is like, it's a path less trodden. And I think in an IPO, like investors have got public market investors, particularly are time poor. So like um, an uncertain or new process has to be really worth engaging in. And some investors would say, well, why would I engage in this if I can't guarantee I'm going to get uh, like a slug of stock in the in the initial offer? So I think um, like a lot of feedback we got was like, this is new. I need to try and understand this. And I think Wise was definitely a stock that was worth them trying to understand. But I would hope that maybe in the future, particularly with uh, the focus in private tech firms at the minute, maybe there's less or there's more profitable companies coming to market in the future, which means that there's less pressure on IPOs to raise capital. And then if the path to direct listings is, is uh, more well-trodden, then maybe that'll make direct listing more relevant to more companies, if that makes sense, because, because it's a viable route for them. As you said as well, what you implied here is that investors are already somehow familiar with your company and your business model, right? And maybe you need to be already known to investors, institutional retail as well, maybe to consider a direct listing. Actually, I don't subscribe to that. I think that's a myth. I think there's a bunch of myths around this. Like Because the investor education we did was exactly the same for an IPO, I would say that's not true. All the documentation is the same. All of They're still at buying stock at a certain point. It's the actual process of like how the auction would work and having them like, is it worth them gearing up their machinery for a slightly different process? Like, so for example, they instead of just putting an order in the night before and making sure they got a, uh, a slug, and if they did, they did. If they didn't, they didn't. They need to like just engage with how that early auction is going to work. And I think the more those happen, the easier it's going to be for them. And also, this really is just how they trade stock every day anyway. So I think it was just the, the unfamiliar. So I think as, that, as it gets more familiar, then it's going to get much easier. If you think about it in reverse, like um, if the standard way of doing this was direct listing, well, okay, I understand this company. Here's why I'm prepared to pay for it. I'm going to put my buy orders in in the auction. So when this product comes to market, I've got my buy orders in the auction and I'll either win the stock or not based on what I think it's fair. Then if they said to you, well, it's going to work slightly differently now, they're going to do this thing on the Sunday night where they're going to decide to sell a lot of stock at a certain price, and they might allocate some to you or not, so you need to put a bid in for a certain price, big, small, etc. That actually, in reverse, sounds more complicated than a direct listing to me. I think over time, the direct listing is going to get more familiar, and especially for companies that don't need to raise money, a kind of easier way to go public. Very interesting because actually, if you think about it, if the investor education process is very similar to a traditional IPO, right? It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Then you could ask yourself a question, what is the value out of the investment banks, right? In, I mean, in a public listing, because then eventually just, um, uh, sorry, direct listing, a technical listing, right? And then when the banks will page you the ID, they can find the investors and, and help you getting the best valuation and the best investor book at the time of the IPO, that argument doesn't really um, hold anymore, right? I've heard the argument that obviously they earn lower fees in the context of a direct listing as a traditional IPO. And I guess those advisors have probably less incentive to push for direct listing as well as a result. Do you think that could be uh, one of the arguments? Or again, that's, uh, that's pushing it. Yeah, I think it's very easy to, to jump on this narrative. But um, banks have not been underwriting IPOs for a long time, as far as I can tell. So I think in the past, like they would take risk on the IPO that if the stock doesn't sell, like they do some of this, but like primarily what the bank is, what your advisors, because they're really it's the advisors, not the bank's capital. What the advisors are really helping through the process is a good blend of like handholding you through the process. So helping you really understand, like craft a story that investors understand and will buy into, because it's a different type of investor as a public company investor to those that are investing in you privately, help you answer the 
the questions positively and avoid the potholes and then really prepare you to talk about the company and market the company to the public markets. And that's like this marketing activity, as well as a lot of the plumbing of how to help you actually transition your stock onto the public market. Like uh, I would say, we used Goldman and Morris Stanley, and they were, they were really valuable in actually helping us understand the plumbing of how to get our shares physically trading on the London Stock Exchange, which you would hope would be simple, but is really not like, so actually like that, actually that transition of like the project management, the design and the, and the handholding of all of that stuff is actually, that's got nothing to do whether it's an IPO or a direct listing. So I think what you're paying them for is that rather than the underwriting that they don't do on an IPO or a direct listing anymore anyway. So I think this argument as to like, uh, should they get paid more or less for an IPO versus say direct listing is is a bit mute. I don't see a difference. I didn't actually notice a radical difference in workload. The thing with an IPO is it's easy for them to charge a percentage of the capital raised, whereas in a direct listing you don't you don't raise any money. So it's kind of you just need to be upfront and say, well, what's the fee? That may makes a lot of sense. And you know, choosing rightly your IPO advisors and banks to make sure you, you as you say, you craft the right equity story and you get the plumbing right is obviously very important. I think there's another key difference though still is your inability in a direct listing to choose you um, shelter based day one, right? And I know some management teams or shelters really want to to have that luxury and to choose which investors to allocate. Probably give them a sense of security, knowing where the shares are going and a sense of stability over time. Although we all know there's a lot of turnover in your shelter base. But this inability to choose a shelter base day one, did you thought about that? A- any negatives in the direct listing versus traditional IPOs in that sense? Yeah, I, I understand this argument pretty clearly, and I, but I would argue a, a few things. One is like um, in an IPO, if you're trading 25% of the company on the first in the IPO, which traditionally in the UK you would have historically seen, you have the chance to put I don't know, 20% in the hands of four or five or six or seven long onlys, and then 5% in the hands of the, the funds that may trade your stock and provide liquidity. I think the reality is like that rarely happens anymore. Like in the US... IPOs are like six to eight to ten percent float. So, like, if you take the IPO contact, the US, like, a very small proportion of your company is changing hands on that first day, and that is all for the first six months, right? And then, really, when your stock changes hands is like after day 180, when the lockups come off of an IPO. We didn't have any lockups, and then it's a free for all, just like on a direct listing. So, on the one hand, I think this is kind of overstated as to what actually happens, unless you sell a huge amount of stock in the IPO. Uh, which therefore you have to sell at a, a price that is at a discount and brings all the challenges. And then the other is, is like, there's nothing stopping you doing this before you go public. So Bailey Gifford were already one of our leading shareholders before the IPO. They've been in since 2015. They're an amazing shareholder. BlackRock, you know, like Jupiter, Chris, you know, a bunch of these really good public company shareholders were already good supporters of the company before we went public and keeping a keen eye and then build their positions afterwards. So I think, and it's actually easier to build those relationships when you're private than when you're public. So I think there are ways around that. And, and then I also do know that um, long-term supportive shareholders, ultimately they have an IRR, so they can be in in the morning, you know, absolutely want to hold you long-term, but need to sell at the end of the first day if the stock pops. <laughs> so I think that happens too. I totally understand the attractiveness of that, but our view is that over the very long term, we need to build these relationships anyway. And we'd already built a lot, a lot of them already. How many investors did you have, more or less, on the cap table? I'm trying to remember how many lines. I would say we had around 40 to 50 investors, of which uh, it was pretty concentrated to, well, 
actually it was not concentrated so probably had 15 to 16 or 17 that you know were in the kind of one percent plus club and the, after the IPO, have you monitored your liquidity versus other listed stock uh, or IPOs in the sense to try to measure if that liquidity was lower as a real result of the direct listing or no impact from your experience? Uh, so liquidity daily, average daily trading volume is, is pretty important. But I remember looking after six months after being public, so it would have been you know early 2022, and looking at how much, what percentage of the company had changed hands since being public. I looked at just the cap table before and after. And... Um, and I remember it being about 17 to 20% of the company had changed hands at that point. And I was like, okay, that's not that, the cap table didn't look that different. But actually, like, even a large UK listing, you know, until the lockup, only 20% of the company really would have been changed hands because that's what would have traded in the IPO and then everything else would have been locked up for the first six months. So actually, like, relative to an IPO, especially a US one, I thought, yeah, a fair amount of stock has changed hands. So the progress of, you know, that transition to public markets had definitely started. We do look at daily liquidity. Our daily liquidity is is in line with that we see for the amount of like free float or like stock that is held is roughly in line with other European companies and tech companies. What makes our stock a little less liquid today is the fact that a lot of our early investors, like whether it's um, our early VCs or our kind of growth stage investors, are still holding onto the stock. They chose not to sell or distribute, and that's a, a nice problem to have. It's a good sign, sign of confidence. Yeah, exactly. But um, it means that probably half the stock is held by these folks. And uh, if that's the case, then that's great. Um, there's lots of companies that would love a supportive shareholder base like this. So like, yeah, I think it's a good sign. When I checked actually the, the statistics, I, I think around 10% of the of your company changed hands the first week after the IPO. And you think about it, 10% is actually in line with a uh, you know, free float of US companies. Yeah. And, and then remember, like the other 90% was free to trade. Whereas in a US IPO, that 10% changed. And then the other 90% is locked up. And you've got this big cliff everyone's looking at after six months, which we didn't have. Okay. Moving on to another topic, the, the listing location, right? I'm sure you put a lot of thoughts and thinking about UK versus the US or maybe some other locations. What were the criteria you chose for the listing location? Yeah. So uh, we're a pretty global business. And, uh, you know, our customers are pretty distributed, our revenues and incomes are, our team is as well. But we are, um, we're a London-based company, main regulators in London. And we really looked at like, obviously, you know, we looked across a bunch of markets, but, you know, we'll be listed in the UK or we'll be listed in the US. You know, we think about our products as like price, speed and ease of use. And I kind of try to think about this for listing as like price and convenience. So like, are we going to get good value? And does it help the company or hurt the company being listed in that location? Is it like expensive? Is it pain in the ass or easier? When you look at valuations, it was really unclear to us like where you would get a premium valuation. There was the arguments that like, well, US investors understand tech firms much better. Then there's the argument that, I mean, Adiance or world-class company, they're like, well, actually, there's very few tech growth companies in Europe. So Hmm, actually, there's a scarcity premium in Europe. Like you can look at either of these and make up the story you want to believe that you're going to get a premium. Um, fundamentally, like great investors will find great companies. And I think our, if you look at the way we trade, I think that's true. These exchanges are like entry points. They're like uh, airport terminals to the world's financial market. With different rules, different regulation though, right? Exactly. From a valuation perspective, they're like, they access the same pools of capital. They do have like different rules and regs, which may make them more or less convenient. So the UK has got a great advantage of, you know, we only have to do full reporting twice a year. I think that's a real benefit and helps us. That's for sure. And the way we report is pretty convenient for us in, in the UK. And I, I know a bunch of US investors are so actually, that's pretty good. Like it kind of gets pretty painful having to like 
explain away move PNL every every quarter versus looking at us every six months. It helps people be a little bit more long term focused. There are rules that there are reporting differences, there are disclosure differences, that's for sure. But on the margin, like the UK definitely wasn't less convenient than the US. If anything, like the reporting disclosures were like, actually, that's pretty good. And then when you put that together with the, the time zone we're in, we put that together with where we're based, how we know our regulators, and actually like the analyst community, a very international analyst community supporting financial services that really understand our product in the use case. Uh, we're like, actually, this is going to be as good a place as any to list. And so far, so good. Maybe this will be different for different companies, but for us, this was uh, where we got to. Were there any consideration around governance and, you know, dual class of shares as well? I mean, that's a recurring topic. I would split those. So the UK governance code is like, we voluntarily took this on. So you kind of have premium and standard listings and you don't need to take this on a standard listing in the UK. And we, we're handling people's money and building a financial service company. Like we should definitely like uh, hold ourselves to the highest golden standard on this. And we do. And we were always going to run a well-governed company with a fully independent board. And uh, a lot of this regulation comes from a good point of protecting customers and shareholders. So it's all pretty common sense. Dual-class shares are, you know, you can do them in the UK, as we did, but you can't get into the indexes. So that was a, a consideration. But ultimately, we do this for five years. So over time, this would resolve itself. And then it looks like, as well, the UK is definitely thinking about how does it enable companies to provide a, a form of dual-class share structure, which I think is great. We'd have always had a dual-class share structure. It was definitely what we wanted to transition from private to public market. And, you know, we found a way to do that, not just with the listing regime, but also with our regulators. You know, they were very supportive of this. If you think about, you know, we obviously had to work with all of our regulators in explaining this. And obviously, we've got alignment on that. So, so you know, this debate keeps going on and the IPO of ARM just revived it again. Um, and there's a lot of talk about how attractive or unattractive the UK market is and the listing regime in the UK versus the US. Do you think there's anything that should be um, changed or that would be um, easy, quick wins for the UK to be a bit more attractive and competitive versus the US for tech companies specifically? I mean, I would have said like two, three years ago, or maybe even a year or two ago, like if you're an investing phase tech business, as in a loss, a negative profit, a loss making company, as in you're still in that investing phase, I think there's a lot more investors in the US that are going to really understand your that or have appetite for that more so than the UK back then. I think that's changed now. Like I'm not sure there's that much appetite for that anywhere in the world, but maybe that will revert. I think there's much more capital chasing that in the US and there's much more experience in there that will grow in the UK over time, no doubt. I think UK, US, there's a lot of myths around this. Like we're happily listed here. Our stock is liquid. We access all the shareholders in the world that we want to. You know, the vast majority of our shareholders, the phone calls we get are from shareholders in the US who are very happy to trade our stock on the London Stock Exchange. So I think these are all probably situational to a given company. And I think all the things that the UK regime talks of doing are definitely moving in the right direction. Just, uh, you know, if they can do this and uh, whether they can keep those companies here in London, time will tell. But um, the fundamentals of this are, uh, you know, it's a great place to access the world's public markets in my mind. So if you were to give an advice to a CFO trying to think about the best listing location for him, it's interesting, you just said that uh, you have no problem interacting with US investors and they can invest uh, in your shares every day, trade them. And you said that, you know, from a valuation perspective today, you cannot conclude that if you get a premium or discount versus US peers. So it seems that it's very down to um, a decision based on culture, on business location, based on you know, what would be the main considerations or advice you will give to such CFO. I mean, we're fortunate to be based in London, you know, like we have a good market to list in here in London and it works well with how our operations are set up. That may not be true for every company. Like the US is undoubtedly the deepest exchange and capital markets in the world. So it's, it's a great option. It's where can you find investors 
and investors will find you that really understand your company. If you're a um, a very small fish in a very big pond, that may not work. So really, I think it's a question of like, where do you, where does your story really resonate with the largest pool of investors? And um, you know, we're fortunate in that we, you know, we have a global product, so we have products in the customers in the US and all around the world, and uh, we're a scale. You know, ten billion dollar today, roughly business. That means that we're really relevant for U.S. Um, U.S. investors as well. If you're much smaller than that, it may be that you're you may not hit the radar of some of these larger U.S. funds, or it may be that really your your product or your brand is really understood locally. But um, there's lots of great examples of companies that have listed locally. But there's also like if you look at New Bank or someone like this who've done a really successful listing in the U.S. and they don't have a business in the U.S. So I don't think there's a right or wrong on this. As a CFO, I just want to make sure that I'm listing. In a market where I can have really good engaged conversations with investors in that market. Yeah, makes sense. I'd like to quickly touch upon the um, the IPO readiness because being listed requires some uh, you know preparation ahead of the listing. Looking back, uh, so three years ago, soon, can you share with us what was the main work stream or the the hardest one to implement to get the the company ready? You say yourself you had no previous experience with public markets, so you had to learn on the way. What are the key uh, lessons learned? Well, I think the big trap that it's easy to fall into is. Uh, It's kind of this word of IPO readiness. So you need to do an IPO, but you need to be public company ready, right? And we kind of jammed those two phrases together and ended up trying to get ready for an IPO and not being ready to be a public company because you're so focused on this event that um, all the work streams are like executing the event. Whereas actually what you really need to be doing is being prepared to be the next day when you go back to the office, right? And have to run a public company. And um And it's really hard to focus on being a public company when you're trying to execute an IPO. And I didn't realize this at the time either. We did all right. We're okay. But um, I think when you haven't been a, to your point, when you haven't been a public company CFO before, it's really hard to understand what you're getting ready for. So for example, like, you know, just the quarterly reporting regime, like setting guidance, uh, managing to guidance, like managing and analysts, uh, you know, consensus and like all of these things like you haven't had to do before. And they're, uh, they're things that you learn to do pretty quickly. And then also like things around disclosure or reporting or all of these things that you need to have the mechanisms in place to do. That was all in the IPO prep. You didn't really know why it was important because you haven't really lived in those shoes as a public market CFO. So advice I would give to a CFO is just go and shadow a, another public company CFO for a quarter or for the weeks around a reporting cycle. And um, we'll get them to talk you through it. And suddenly you'll start to realize like what her challenges were or why some of these things are, oh, oh crikey, I know I know why I need to do that. Because a lot of these things that you work on through the IPO prep or the this process, it feels a bit like paperwork that an, an auditor wants to sign off. You're like, okay, we'll just do that thing, get that policy in place and move on, right? Whereas actually like you need to have these processes working and it's okay, like you'll get there as a public company, but you, you kind of only really get it when you go through that first cycle. So um, yeah, it's fun. I'm not sure you can ever prep enough. He just generally works out okay. I like your comment that is, you know, it's not about IPO readiness, but it's actually being ready for being a public company, right? Yeah, exactly. The IPO is just a process. But then it would go against the idea to hire someone as a CFO who has no experience with a public company. Right? Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. Maybe once you've done this once, you don't want to do it again. I mean, I was really lucky. Like, I had two great CFOs on my board in David... Uh, who was CFO at Netflix and Ingo who took Adi in public and like wonderful people that helped me um, help me through the process and, uh, and I would, whether they're on your board or whether they're just in your personal boardroom like you, any CFO should get get us help yeah no, that's very important to have the right people around you obviously just reflecting back on the IPO any you know important advantage or what, what you think how it does benefit the company to be public or do you think that's actually really changed the you know who we are today and where you get to two years and a half after the 
Christo describes this as a config change where we just uh, changed the share structure to, you know, they just traded on a public exchange rather than in a private cap table. And he said this like, he said this kind of somewhat intentionally, but if you take the attitude into this, that it's going to fundamentally change the company, then it fundamentally will, probably not for the better. So we went into this very much with a, okay, like Matt's job's going to get a bit more complicated, but the rest of us, we can keep building wise as we are. Matt's got an expectations management challenge now with a different set of investors. And if we took this approach, it's been really good for the company because it's allowed everyone to keep executing on what we're doing and what we love and how we come to work and how we share information. And the company still operates largely as it did. Clearly, there's a different governance and enhanced governance, I would say, around how we administer the company and run the company. But ultimately, the decision making is fundamentally the same. Like the benefits are our employees have got, obviously, like, yeah, it's a huge team effort, not just becoming a public company, but building wise, right? Like it is the outputs of thousands of people's work and like being able to give those folks liquidity and a return is pretty cool. Some of them realize this and really value the equity they hold in wise. And some people like this is like something beyond they, they could have imagined of actually holding a stake in a company like wise that's, that's now liquid. And, uh, and that's great. We don't talk about the share price. We don't talk about the stuff inside the company. Um, but um, we have this nice alignment between mission and building a valuable company as well. That's a good thing. We didn't need to access different shareholders. I guess the other thing is like, we don't need to talk anymore about when we get public. <laughs> it's done. Yeah, like it's pretty cool. Like we, our board meetings are now very much like, how do we run the company for the next five to 10 to 20 years? Rather than like these next goals that you need to jump through. Feels like a uh, my kids are like a bit bit younger than this. You know, they're that eleven and fourteen year old. We're like, okay, we're going to go through this school. We're going to go through that. And at some point, they'll leave home. It feels like Wise has left home now. And you know, we had great support through being private from our early investors and stuff. But now we're we're grown ups in the wig world, and, it's, and we need to like we're in charge of this destiny, which is which feels pretty cool as well. Like we kind of purely focused on uh, on running the company. No, but now you can actually talk about how to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're kind of always worrying about what's in ahead of you rather than behind. So. But there's no regret, right? Basically, it's not like, oh, we, we should not have done the IPO. It was a bad decision. Being private for longer was probably a better choice. No, I mean, we didn't make any just different decisions. It's worked out well. Right? Yeah, it worked really well, exactly. And you showed the way, but the fintech sector has probably been the sector raising the most capital the last few years in Europe. And we haven't seen many IPOs in the space. After your success, no one really followed in Europe. I mean, actually, you had one in the UK, Cap Payment, which is probably not the best example to mention here. But, you know, if I look at the list, the names of Checkout, Revolut, Klarna, they haven't yet hit the market. Why do you think that's the case? Is that just market conditions or there are other reasons for fintechs? not to be ready to be public companies yet. I think at least two of the three that you mentioned were still in like capital raising mode over this period of time. So in that sense, you need to, even if you are ready, you need the conditions to be right in order to go public. So we didn't have that complication. I think the last three, you talk about Klarna, Revolut, Checkout, you know, these have had phenomenal success from a growth perspective, right? And I'm sure that uh, at the scale that they can operate at and the strength of propositions that they've got, they're all individually going to become, or have every opportunity to become like pretty amazing companies, maybe public companies as well. So, but it's just around when's the right time for them to do it. So uh, that time will come and maybe over their journey of the next 50, 60, 100 years, I'm sure they vision as well as us, like there'll just be this point in time when they become public and that's fine. I think really after we listed, you know, there was a big change in market conditions and I'm, I'm sure this would have impacted others uh, quite significantly. Like some may be happy about that, some may be sad, I don't, time will tell. But, you know, like um, the stronger companies will have been able to access capital and I'm sure this change in market conditions will have really strengthened. The best companies will have got stronger and I think they'll come out as very strong public companies. Some companies won't make it. This is survival of the fittest and that's why we need these cycles. 
What do you think is the most significant edge that a fintech company can actually bring to the market or show to you know, public investors that you know, they are winning that? Oh, well, so there's two fundamentals in there. Like one is like, what's the edge? And I think, did you mean that from an investment or as a competitive? As a competitive. Yeah, so and this leads to investment as well. But like as a disruptor in a field of incumbents, if you think about what, what's WISE done, We've worked out a way through not being encumbered by historic ways of charging or building a business and bringing technology and a disruptive mindset to moving money around the world that means we can do it radically cheaper and radically better than the incumbents and do that profitably, which is the fundamental shift. And if you can do that, you can disrupt a market, take a lot of market share by offering an amazing product and doing it profitably. Like That's going to be a valuable company, whether that's moving money around the world, whether it's moving food around the world or cars or anything. Like That's going to be a successful business from a valuable business. So why does fintech win against traditional finance? Well, and it doesn't always. Like, Does the technology actually help you disrupt like does the platform that you're building actually help you do it at a much lower cost and therefore do it profitably there are some companies out there that they might be offering a free product which is awesome but in the back end it's not costing them any less and ultimately they're trying to acquire customers and hope one day to build a business model around it and i think there's a ton of those businesses out there that have just uh, the tide's gone out and they've we've worked out like who's um, who's wearing what so if you can find businesses that can build a truly much better product or a tablet would say you know Unless it's 10 times better than the competition, no one's going to come try it. And you can do that profitably and sustainably, which I think Wise has done and some of these other companies are doing. If you can do that, great. And then the other thing on tech is, or fintech, we don't use these words very much from Wise, but like um, financial services businesses are fundamentally like national businesses. Like I'm sure when you look at them, like banks are really like national businesses, like those that are able to scale internationally. And I think if you look at tech investors, they're like, like, how can I be 10 times? How can this company grow 10 times? Like, you probably need to grow outside your existing market. Some companies, you know, they can use a platform. So right, I've launched in the UK, can I launch in France? Or I've launched in Germany, can I go to Spain? Or I've launched in Germany, can I go to Singapore? Like, and actually, as a as in a traditional banking world, not many banks have managed to do that. I mean, HSBC are, but they've bought a lot of banks around the world. There's very few financial services companies that are, I think PayPal have done that. I think we've done that. I think Revolut are doing a reasonable job of doing that. Clarity, you mentioned, and maybe the payment processes of the check, the Adians, the And then what is it around them? It's around the platform that they've built that enables them to say, right, I've done that here. I can use the same technology there and build a business on top of that there. Like JP Morgan are really good at this, but very few of the incumbent banks are actually really good at that. And I think that's what, if you go to investors, say, ah, so I can see how this company can grow for a long, 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 long time and profitably because they've got this core thing in the the product built into the business model, but also built into the nature of the way the company works. And I think that's like, makes you competitive and makes you valuable. But you need to balance this uh, growth and profitability, right? Because you, you grow, grow profitability is nice, but I think especially in the in the financial space, right? Your growth is expensive in the sense that you know it requires some capital, and you need to raise capital to fund your growth as you grow, right? In terms of just capital requirements that you know maybe the regulator will so impose on you, right? Yeah, but then why would you build a business model that's expensive to grow if you can build a business that's profitable and more than profitable enough? To, like, why is we we price away? Why, why do we have a margin? Well, yes, it generates distributable income for shareholders, but also generates enough capital that we don't need to raise capital to grow. So like, we need to hold capital relative to the size of our business, but we're profitable enough that we generate our own capital. Like We've not raised any capital for six or seven years, and we generate more than enough capital from the business. So so actually, like um, we've built a business model that is uh, not capital intensive, and it gener- we generate more than enough capital and liquidity 
to be able to fund our own growth. And, and this is, fun. like I so said, for example, in every jurisdiction, we all price slightly differently and we price in the capital needed to grow. In Australia, it's slightly more intense. Malaysia, much more intense. US, less so. We, we're very clear on the capital intensity of product. And then our teams will work because we understand that in our pricing. Our teams go back and work and say, right, how do I take that capital intensity out of the product? Because I know that's going to stop us. If that's a gating factor, I'm either going to have to charge our customers more, which means we're less competitive, or raise a load of money from our shareholders, which is like, well, why would I want to do that? So, so I think this is like, um, it's very easy to go, oh, this is a capital-intensive business. We just need to raise a load of capital to grow. And, and so are, are the public investors now asking and questioning you about the use of, of that profitability? Are you returning that cash to shareholders? Are, are you priced to reinvest for growth? So how are the public investors looking at your capital structure and shareholders policy? I do remind that we already return like a third of our gross profit goes back into product and marketing at a really amazing return. So we're already returning like uh, reinvesting a lot of this. And then we, we obviously have a very healthy profit margin. And we've actually started to buy back like some of the stock, like for our stock comp program, like if we issued a bunch of grants to new hires or existing customers this quarter, we buy that stock in the market rather than diluting more down. So we care about dilution. We do have more capital than we need. And the question is like, should we, I get, I get the question, should we start buying back stock or paying some kind of dividend? And I'm like, let's just, let's hold on. Like we just go back to the start of this conversation. Yeah. Three years ago, we were a brand new public company. Like, will you be able to keep growing? And suddenly like we're in a period of being more profitable than we want it to be, let alone hopes. Right. So I think it's a bit early to say, right, let's, uh, let's jump in and become an income stock. So, um, like we're still growing and we're still building a strong balance sheet, which can endure whatever comes around the corner. And um, we're still a fraction of the size that we want to be. So I think we're nowhere near the time where we're optimizing for financial engineering and let's just keep going. Like with uh, what we're doing is working pretty well. I say to investors, like the good news is if you ask the question, you realize that actually we've got quite a lot of capacity one day to pay a very healthy return to shareholders. Like let's continue focusing on growing that capacity rather than optimizing it today. Yeah, no, obviously. And there's a lot of options on the table, clearly. And I guess that's also one of the advantages of being public. It's give you that optionality for whatever comes next, as, as you said. Uh, Matt, we're coming to an end to this show. Two last questions for me. If I hear you well, if you were to um, you know, have the decision to IPO not again the company, you will do it again, right? I'd do a direct listing. <laughs> the most efficient one uh, process. No, but clearly, I think it's, it's a very interesting process. And, and I hope we see more because, again, there were expectations that, that WISE will open up formats. Uh, and, and to be fair, we haven't seen any since, since the IPO of WISE. I mean, obviously, the market has been a bit challenging. But if some of those companies we mentioned become profitable, I think they have a good model to follow. So hopefully, um, that will, we see that coming. Any uh, war or fun fact or war memories you could share with us from the IPO marketing or roadshow or anything funny? I set aside a day to read our prospectus. And as a CFO, you'll realize that you've got like three to 400 page prospectus to just reread because you sign this thing and you have to have it right. And I got down to the stairs to my office because we did all this at home. And um, I don't joke to say that my dog had eaten my glasses overnight. So uh, I couldn't read this prospectus on the screen. So I had to read it from like five meters across the room on like 48 fonts. It was pretty painful. And then the other is, is like, we did this all from home. We did this like, you know, first half of 21. So we, we had a few meetings with a couple of team members during this, but we didn't meet any of the advisors or anyone until we came out of the LSE on the 7th of July and like met up with each other in Padnoster Square. So like most people like want to celebrate like being on this strange balcony in the foyer of the LSE, but actually we were like, let's get outside because I haven't seen this team through this really intense period. So as a bunch of teammates, we got together and illegally might have hugged, but um, it was pretty awesome to see each other like, and just realize that you've gone through this experience like on Zoom. <laughs> it was kind of nice. 
Yeah, Setsani makes great memories. Yeah, a good team experience. Like what the project was, it was a project, but it was a pretty intense one and it worked all right. What was the project name? Remember? Uh, project Owl. I'll let you work out why this might be. Exactly. <laughs> but Matt, no, thank you very much for sharing you, uh, your experience with us. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Matt today. If you'd like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact.ipostories.com. In the meantime, please follow us on LinkedIn, where we share news and information about the IPO process.